This is Impact, a look at what matters in Nevada. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Honestly, it's been a week. I feel a bit like a junkie who has gone on a long binge, sleeping restlessly on the couch to the rat-a-tat of Steve Kornacki's voice, rising occasionally to open my computer and take a note or two. The entire world has been watching Nevada and figuring out how to say our state's name. But as much of Las Vegas has a reputation as a fast-paced, now-or-never kind of town, our approach to counting ballots is slow and steady. Accuracy before speed. And we have new heroes. Steve Kornacki is trending on Twitter. That's pretty hilarious. But even Stephen Colbert hailed Clark County Registrar Joe Gloria. I can't help but think that the world is getting a glimpse of the real Las Vegas, the one that f- that's filled with real people who take their obligations seriously. We are going to talk about the elections in a moment, uh, but first, we're going to talk about COVID. We're going to look at the numbers as we usually do this week. We have passed a grim uh, milestone in number of daily COVID cases. We passed that milestone twice And we are taping this on Friday night. I haven't looked at the numbers yet today. We may have passed it a third time. On Wednesday, as the frenzy over the election was turning into a national political uh, battle with patience, we passed 100,000 new cases of COVID in one day. Then on Thursday, we crossed the 120,000 cases per day mark. 235,000 people have died in the U.S. of coronavirus since March. One of them was a poll worker in St. Charles, Missouri, a suburb of St. Louis, who found out she had COVID last week, worked the polls on Tuesday, and even though she was sick, and she's dead now. She died within two days of working the polls. There was a meme going around showing Trump looking at a map with all the red states highlighted in the middle of the country. And he says, wow, look at all those red states. And the two guys off to the side say... Which one of us should tell him he's looking at a COVID map? We are joined this hour by some familiar names, people who have weighed in on this election journey with me. Sandra Cosgrove is a professor at CSN and the president of the Nevada League of Women Voters. Lisa Mosley is a seasoned Nevada political consultant who was political director earlier this year for Bernie Sanders in the state of Nevada. She runs Action Company Consulting, a political consulting and development firm. Cecia Alvarado is the director of Mi Familia Vota, a nonpartisan group focusing on getting out the vote in Latino communities. And Sarah O'Connell is the editor of Eat More Art. She is a leader in the arts community here in Las Vegas, and she's the executive director of the Henderson Symphony. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Thank you. Yay, yay. For having me. (laughs) Okay, so um, it's been a week, a week that saw a record number of COVID cases, uh, but that really didn't hit the news. The news, of course, was the presidential elections. Right now, Biden is winning in in this state, in Nevada, uh, and major news outlets have shaded Nevada and Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania as blue, so they're expecting Biden to take all of those states. A lot of Trump voters are unhappy, uh, but celebrating that they did so well. Progressives, on the other hand, are texting each other anxiously saying, why are there 69 million people who voted for Trump? So I want to put that out to you. Is this something that Trump did right, Lisa Mosley, or is this something that Democrats did wrong? Ooh, you would start with me, huh? Yeah, I would start with you. (laughs) I think it's a little bit, maybe a little bit of both. I'm going to say more on the side Trump did wrong um, or did right, so to speak. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. I just think people are just feeling left out, feeling left out. And I don't know that the Democratic Party has done a good job of addressing those concerns. I feel like they just have their agenda. Mm-hmm. And it's one that has worked for them. It's a status quo agenda, if you ask me. And it has worked for them for a lot of years. But I think in the last few years, people are just tired of that. I think people are tired of it. And as bad as Trump is, you know, nobody, I won't say nobody, people are very upset about what he's doing and 
But I also think people are upset with the Democrats also. And I think that's just not a good look for them. What's not a good look for them? The fact that they weren't able to uh, convince people in rural counties uh, to vote for them? I I'm, I'm, I'm... just don't think they've done a good job of addressing the concerns that people have. I mean, mm. when you think about the number of folks who were supporters of the Bernie Sanders platforms, the Elizabeth Warrens, those platforms were more general. They, they, uh, they helped more people, you know, they addressed more people's issues. And, and the Dems just are status quo, you know? I mean, obviously one of the things that first come to mind is, is Medicare for all, mm -hmm. you know, just the idea of ensuring that everyone has access to healthcare and making it not only affordable, but just make, making it where people don't even have to pay for it. They don't have to worry about it. The Democrats just seem so resistant to things like that. And I think it's coming, I think it's coming to bite them. Interesting. Uh, Sandra, the, you know, the Latino community came out to vote. We were worried about that. Um, the black community has come out to vote nationally uh, in, in, in droves. I mean, black women, again, carried us over the line. White women, we're 55 percent of white women voted for Trump, which just floors me. So how do you reach that person who decided to vote for Trump? Like, and, and when did that happen? We're in the middle of a pandemic, which he is which he has not handled well. And yet people still said, yeah, we want to vote for this guy. So I'm not going to frame it that way because um, I had one of my students messaging me today who took my history 101 class. And he said, this is really scaring me because I feel like it's 1860. Mm. He said, he goes, I feel like we're as divided as we were before we started shooting at each other. Mm -hmm. And I actually think he's right. And we ended up having a civil war because Abraham Lincoln was willing to say enough is enough. We have got to change. This has got to stop. Enough is enough. And unfortunately, I think what the Democrats have done is they just kind of coast. The other side is a little bit worse than they are. They're a little more racist. They're a little more outrageous. They're a little bit whatever. And so there are people who reject that and kind of drift over to the Democrats. And so the Democrats are like, OK, great. I guess you're our people and we're just going to coast on that. But they don't do a good job of having um, a, a change agenda where they're going to get things done and they're going to change and they're going to remake the world. We're to, if you use the 1860 analogy again, we're, the Democrats are going to have to be like Abraham Lincoln. They're going to have to grow a spine. They're going to have to say change is, is going to happen and they're going to have to do it, whether they don't get reelected again, whether they get lawsuits because they're always afraid of something. But we're at that moment in time where we're trying to make a big move forward and change. And we've got to have a party that's going to be the catalyst to move that change. And the Democrats are still coasting. Mm. And so they're, they're not offering that, that big change that we're all feeling should be happening. And so we're all still waiting for it. I feel like the Republicans are, are doing more than coasting. They're sort of imploding. And, uh, and, and there's an opportunity here, perhaps, Lisa, to come in and pick up the pieces? Yeah, you know, I want to touch on something Sandra said about the Democratic Party, particularly their platform. You know, traditionally, they are so resistant to change and they want people to come in and sign on to their platform rather than mm. adjusting their platform to address the issues that people are saying they have. And I think people have been asking the Democratic Party for that for so long, particularly African-Americans and other minority groups. You know, the thing I like about the Latino group is they're just not loyal to the Democratic Party. And yeah. if you're not if you're not supporting our issues, guess what? We're going to go and find somebody that that, that is. Historically, African-Americans have been loyal, so loyal to the Democratic Party. And it looks like it's gotten to the point where the Democrats just trust that they're going to vote for them. Mm -hmm. And they don't address any of those issues. But they're so resistant to changing their platform. And we see that playing out. It's They just want to maintain the status quo because they feel like that's been working for them. Cecia Alvarado, I want to bring you in here. Um, the Latino population. And first of all, it's a, an incredibly diverse population. Uh, and, you know, if, if I had somebody tell me uh, about a month ago, you know, when you talk to her, remember, she's Cubana. <laughs> I was like, yes, I, I, I get I get why you're saying that. I understand. I've been schooled on this a long time ago. But it's there, there's a real hatred there between people. 
Uh, so give me a sense of what, uh, you know, what the people, different, different factions of the Latino community want and why some of them are going Republican. Um, I, I will start by saying, yes, unfortunately, there's a lot of division among us Latinos, uh, those that define themselves as, you know, uh, the Latinos that are from uh, the Caribbean Latinos tends to be more conservative. And then we have also the South American Latinos that are, tends to be a little bit more conservative too. And then you have the Mexicans, um, uh, Latinos and the Central American Latinos, that's where I, I fit in. So we, um, among each other, we're, we're definitely, and I think we're far past uh, saying this, Latinos are, mon are not monolith, Latinos, right. Um, the Latino community um, needs to be approached, no one as a whole, but you got to understand, like, when we talk about Florida, you're talking about the, the, the Cuban Latinos, yeah. and then you talk about Texas, you're talking about those conservative Latinos. But we also have the Latinos that are very much um, aware of what's going on in our politics. And, I'm, and I you know, keep hearing about um, how many other people show up to uh, vote for Trump and how many Latinos show up to vote for Trump, but more, also more Latinos show up and vote against Donald Trump. And, um, and part of me is also worried to see and, and a little bit saddened to see how many um, other uh, geographics do not align with us um, until you really understand what it's like to having your family turn apart, until you really understand what it's like to face uh, voter suppression, then you won't understand this. Then you won't, it's not about party lines and it's not about Democrats and Republicans. It's really about um, feeling like we are not, we're in this alone. And we continue to feel, uh, have this feeling in two, three days after the election, I, I, I feel more alone than ever wow. in this community because they didn't stand with us Latinos. Latinos, we stood up with each other during this election, but we stood up alone because people still show up and voted for a, for a guy that has been attacking us. Mm -hmm. People still voted for a guy that has been turning our families apart, separating kids from their parents and stripping us of our very basic human rights. And they were okay with that. There's so many people that are okay with this and they show up and voted for Trump. Yeah. Regardless whether you agree with the political party, they, they agree with this agenda. And that's what worries me about um, what's coming for us as, as Latinos. Even if we show up at historical numbers, they also show up at historical numbers to vote against us. Yeah, that's what I took away from this, too. I, I, you know, I was really, really happy to see that uh, the Latino vote came out. But what do... What, do, what does the Democratic Party need to do to make sure that everybody is seen, that people don't feel alone? I think we need to um, really de redefine the message. Um, unfortunately, one thing that the, the uh, Trump has been very consistent is in his message, whether that has been a message of, of, of hatred. He has been very consistent and has not changed the messaging. Um, I know that sometimes... Um, due to misinformation, that the Republicans tend to stick to that one message. Um, and due to misinformation, um, Latinos tend to believe this is what I'm hearing over and over and over. And this is not just me saying it. This is from polling from, from Equis that they poll Latinos in different uh, swim states and they felt the same way. What is the messaging? What, what are you trying to appeal? Like, what, what are you, uh, like, what do you, what do you believe on? And so you're, if you're hearing from Republicans that um, if you vote for Biden, and, and um, this is just my opinion, we're mm -hmm. nonpartisan. I'm not here to advocate for one of the other, but I mean, I'm definitely not here to advocate for Donald Trump. <laughs> but, um, but if you, if you hear from the other, from the opposition, or if you hear from one party that this person is a socialist, this person is a socialist yeah. and that fear, cause I'm, I'm an immigrant Latina. I come from a country that has Medicare for all and it doesn't work in our country. So if you don't really, if you don't have this conversation with Latinos about what does it mean to have Medicare for all? What does it mean to have like access to a uh, free college? Because if you're talking to me about it, I want to be able to understand it because I escaped a system that didn't work for me. I escaped that system when I was 16 years old that didn't work for me. And many other Latinos escaped those systems that were not working for them. So if you hear Republicans saying this over and over and over again, that this isn't going to work for you, then you're, you're triggering that this is why we left our country and I, we can't like we can't continue to leave everything behind because it's it's almost like a ghost is following us. Um, we need to understand 
like I did after, you know, having those conversations with, with uh, what it means to have like access to um, Medicare or healthcare for all. What doesn't mean that it's going to be the same way that it, it is back in Costa Rica that my mom has been waiting for a surgery for the past three years. Wow. So we, it's triggering that. It's triggering that I left so much behind me. I, I literally left my whole, an entire life. Who does that? out of just out of like pleasure who leaves their family like I came here to like raise myself basically as a 16 year old who does that if it's not because you're escaping something it's it's because you don't you don't want to go back to that and if someone presents that threat again to you and said like this is, is you're going back to that so the past 20 years of my life what well you know I I left I left everything for what to come back to this no right so i think it's just it's really about messaging with the latino community sarah i want to bring you in here um it's about messaging uh and uh, and getting and i know that in, in 2018 white women showed up and voted democrat this time they did not uh and and i feel like you know i've, I've run into people who or like, yeah, I really don't care about them. I'm just going to vote for myself. I run into them, and they tend to be Trump supporters. But it's it's the people who call themselves liberal who say, oh, we have to do something for those people. Those That's the, that's the kind of person that drives me crazy. So talk <laughs> to me about that. Yes. I mean, it's the idea that people have to wait their turn or take let things take their time so that everybody has a, a fair same chance <laughs> is I think something that white people, if I may say as a white person, are not accustomed to having to do unless they feel like they're being charitable or look at me, good for me, I'm being so patient. And I think it's condescending and I think it's kind of what we are it's not a conscious choice. It's part of that implicit bias of walking around as someone with privilege, where it's an adjustment you might not be used to making in your life right. if you're spoiled, right? Right. And so, so you might be well-intentioned, but uh, you might actually overestimate how willing you are to go the distance <laughs> that you should be going if you're going to walk or talk. So I just think part of it is just uh, you know, some people wear out a little early where other people stay more committed to the program. <laughs> and that's a, that's a feature of being someone who, you know, has, you know, there's the kid who knows that you have to do your chores before you can go play. And there's the kid who's like not used to have, they do like one chore and they feel like they just broke their arms because they were so <laughs> good, right? And it just has to do with what they're used to their mom making them do. And, you know, in this case, mom is society and it's, you know, works works in their favor to always get, you know, have a shorter wait time. So I want so. to transition here. Um, uh, you have spent a lot of time on Twitter trying to explain to people that what what is happening here in Clark County is actually good. It's actually it actually means the system works. Talk to me about that. Well, I'm like, congratulations. We said we wanted to enfranchise our voters. We said that that means to we're going to have to have same day registration. We're going to have to have ways for people to fix their ballot. We're going to have to have enough time for them to mail them safely and have it be received. We want to be we want to walk our talk and do this. And to the legislature's credit, they did a lot of that. Right. Mm -hmm. We voted that in and we have that and we wouldn't have had it if they hadn't done that. And right. I don't know what it would look like now if we had it. But that means that we should expect it to take as long as it's taking, because that's good. That means the thing we said we wanted, we are going the distance, at least with that, you know? <laughs> and so I'm, and who's complaining online? Uh, and who's complaining on television? Quite frankly, last night was Rachel Maddow and all these people who were lecturing us to be patient all last week. <laughs> and now the minute they have to actually do what they say, mm. They don't like to have to wait as the big and powerful media that's got a show to put on and that hates Donald Trump. So they really want, we all have our stress about who wins this election. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to take but, that. You know, they're not any more entitled to a faster wait than we are. Yeah, you know, I'm going to take that big and powerful media thing, though. They're still counting the votes in California. There, there are a number of congressional races that are still out. 
Uh, I know that there are a number of uh, legislative, uh, state legislative races that are still out there. Nobody's saying, what's going on in California? How come, the, how come the votes are being counted so slowly? But because California went overwhelmingly for Biden, there's no question there. And there's a question here on the presidential vote. Uh, people are targeting Nevada. Uh, you know, I don't feel like this kind of wait time is really unusual. Well, I don't. Th- I think that first of all, it's only a question because they need the six votes for now. Mm. And uh, s- secondly, uh, you know, I think that you have people who never understand Nevada because just like enfranchising your voters, you have to actually genuinely be curious and invest the time it takes to ob- listen to the people when they're trying to tell you what their needs are or who they are as mm. people. And I was frustrated with the media acting like they've never been to Las Vegas before because they come here every time there's an election. They love to go to Vegas to be politicians and be media and politics. And yet it's a shock to them that yeah. the, the concentration of Democrats is in the bottom of the state and it's 75%. I mean, they're every time they are dis- they are not believing us when we tell them who we are, where we are, what we care about. And I always have to go, well, that that's because it fits into their you know, again, another sort of narrative where like they decide they get to decide whether or not we're idiots or not. Right. Lisa, so I want to bring you in here. You, what sense. say you about this? Is, is, is Nevada being dissed here? You know, lots of states are still counting votes. Mm-hmm. We're not the only ones. There's probably I would say most states are still counting votes. I mean, considering COVID and the changes that states made, the way elections are run and expanding the way people get to vote, mail and vote, lots of states are counting ballots. We're not the only one. But because all Joe Biden needs is our six electoral votes to get over and people want to be, I think media outlets want to be the first to talk about it. They want to be the first to break the story. They are saying Nevada, hurry up so that we can get our story out there. And I do in a way think it's being dissed. You know, you look at all the memes that are on social media (laughs) about Nevada, you know, there's so many out there, some of them are funny, but it's kind of frustrating because like Sarah said, we, our state is ensuring that we are getting this right. Joe Gloria said on his in his press conference yesterday, our goal isn't to be fast, our goal is to be accurate. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate the fact that our election officials are working diligently. They have all of these systems of checks and balances in place to make sure that the votes are being counted, they're being counted properly, and that they're following all these protocols. I appreciate that. And yes, I wish people would understand that more. And I do think in a way it's a dig on Nevada. You know, we're Sin City. What happens here stays. There's so much bad media about Nevada already in Las Vegas in particular. And I think these people just want to play into that. But again, I appreciate the fact that our system is is working. And I appreciate the fact that these people are being meticulous and making sure it's done right. Sandra Cosgrove, I'm going to bring you in and then we're going to go to our lawyer to talk about the legal battles here. Uh, But what is happening right now in Clark County and the rest of the state in terms of voting? So voting is over. Um, <laughs> in terms ended, of counting, sorry. That ended on the third. <laughs> um, so what? just what Sarah said and, and what we've all kind of been talking about is that back in August, when we were trying to figure out, you know, we had our, our Ouija board and our crystal ball out and we were trying to figure out what the virus was going to do and how many well, were going to be locked down. We didn't know. So we built we built redundancy into the system. We said, let's send everybody a mail-in ballot and make sure everybody can vote in person just in case because we don't know what's going to happen. And just like Lisa said, our election officials are awesome. They are literally running two different election processes right now mm-hmm. very smoothly. Mm-hmm. And they're being so meticulous and making sure we're being taken care of. But what they said is, is we don't know if the post office is going to be overwhelmed because if we go on lockdown and we're sending 1.8 million ballots out there and they all come in at the same time, the post office is going to be overwhelmed. So they said three days after election day, ballots that come in that are not postmarked, we're going to make an assumption that they went through and for some reason didn't get a postmark. For another four days, anything that's postmarked by election day, we're going to count. And then for a full nine days, because we're not going to be sure if we're on lockdown, how are we going to cure ballots? And we need to make sure we can do that. 
let's give a full nine days so that people can fix ballots. If we were not, just as everybody said, if they were not waiting for our six electoral college votes, no one would care what we were doing here. <laughs> and we would all be going, oh, isn't this great that we're enfranchising people and we're fixing ballots? It's that outside pressure. And I, I said before we started recording, I don't know how many conversations I've had today with outside reporters trying to explain what a calendar is. It's days that we have to do things. It's not just count the ballots. And they don't listen. They're like, well, can't you go faster? Like, <laughs> can't you no, go faster you to make my machine? deadline? That's really yes, it. That's what they, they're like, hurry up. We, you know, we got a story to tell. Yes, exactly. But I want to jump in real quick and say Good. something about what Cecia said. I think the Democrats need to understand that people from Latin America, Latinos, when you talk about socialism, authoritarianism comes with it. Mm-hmm. So in, in Latin America, oftentimes the people who implement socialism are horrible dictators, they're authoritarian, they disappear people, they do awful things. And so fear from Latin America, socialism and authoritarianism go together. Mm-hmm. Here, socialism goes with the New Deal. Ah. And so we have a much more benevolent look and we, have, we don't have that, like Cecilia was saying, that, that panic. And so, again, it's a kind of a cultural competency that in Latin America, authoritarianism oftentimes goes with socialism. Interesting observation. We're going to head uh, right now to uh, the, our lawyer, and I'm going to play this. Oh, Mommy said I could use them. It's mine! I'm telling! You're rude! God, I haven't played that in a long time. I want to bring in Daniel Stewart right now. He is a partner in the law firm of Hutchinson and Stesson. He used to be the general counsel to Governor Sandoval. Uh, Daniel, welcome. Ah, it's good to be here. Yay. Glad I'm really enjoying listening to uh, <laughs> that sure, conversation. I'm sure you are. Um, so I want to talk to you about these lawsuits. There, there's okay. been one, it seems, every day since before the election started, since last week. Uh, they've all been rejected. Uh, talk to me about what's going on here, and are, are any of them still pending? Well, uh, you gave about as good a summary as I could have just right there. There has been lots of lawsuits. They've been in multiple forms uh, over the course of, I would say, beginning in about May when we first started with the uh, male primary that we had. Um, I think a lot of people not only had early issues with the primary, the people that were suing, but also worried that maybe they, it was setting precedent for the, for the general, right? So you had early lawsuits back in May. They've been in federal court. They've been in state court. They've been in the Nevada Supreme Court. They've been in front of judges in Carson City, in front of judges in Clark County, uh, judges all across the ideological spectrum. And and they, they have had success on one suit, one so far. Which and that is? was on, on Election Day, uh, they sued to have the polls kept open an extra hour because of uh, malfunctions at the beginning. So I, I think that's their victory. That's, so so that was interesting to me. That, I mean, that was the Trump side that sued to have the, the polls open. This is the side that keeps saying, we need to close the polls. We, you know, we need to shut down mail-in voting. Correct. Okay. Um, now, part of that is because... They the told sites... all their people to come to vote in person. Correct. Yeah, okay. Correct. And also it's because uh, they seemed to have thought, and I have no way to, to challenge this one way or another, could very well be true, that, that most of the malfunctions that they, they, they saw, they believed were in areas that would be good for, for, for their voters. And so they, they wanted to make sure that, that, that voters they thought were coming out to support them. Uh, yeah, I think there were sites in, in some of the senior centers and so forth that they, they thought were going to be good, good sites that they wanted to make sure that people got the full uh, 12 hours to vote. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was a win. Uh, the rest of them have, have been... Uh, in various forms of trying to stop mail balloting, trying to uh, stop signature verification, uh, trying to uh, perhaps force some different uh, poll observing or vote counting observing rules that are that are currently in place. Um, there's been public records requests uh, that are in, and, and those have kind of won, but 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 not on the deadline that. They wanted their, they, they've wanted uh, copies of the signature ballots, and, and, and they are entitled to those under the law. It's just they're not necessarily entitled to them right away uh, under the public records law. So those, those will come trickling in um, uh, in, the, in the days to come per the, per the court's order. But, but for the most part, you're right, and it's, it's been very quick, right? Since basically since you and I first 
exchange of text this morning, you had uh, the motions on the latest federal lawsuit. You had the hearing and the ruling all all in about four or five hours. And uh, uh, that was another uh, another uh, loss for the um, for the Trump campaign. So what I was uh, um, seeing from today's lawsuit, uh, which actually which actually dropped last night, uh, was is that it was pretty much the same lawsuit from November 2nd. Uh, they wanted to uh, stop the machines from reading the signatures uh, and they wanted uh, to be able to uh, have to be able to have people closer, more people in the room watching. And the, and part of the issue with the November 2nd ruling is that the judge said, no, the signature verification machines, they work and they're completely legal. And by the way, you don't have standing because you, you right. haven't been harmed by this. So it, fe- it feels like to, to me last night, what they came back with was, see, we've been harmed by this. There are people here who have been harmed by this. So now give us our lawsuit. Correct. That, that's a very, very uh, good analysis there. It's, it was v- a, a very similar lawsuit, much the same. In fact, that lawsuit's still going on, huh. the state lawsuit. It's, it's in the Nevada Supreme Court right now. Uh, there was an attempt to get it dismissed uh, but the parties couldn't agree to get it dismissed, so it's it's still active, um, and and so this is a, a very similar lawsuit. What, what's different is there's new parties uh, that they have alleged uh, give them better standing, uh, as well as they've they've tried to to bring in particular harm. They had a a, a specific voter that uh, is alleging that someone. I guess what she's alleging is that somebody voted in her place and, and mm-hmm. had the signature had the signature machine been working or the process been working, uh, it would have caught that and wouldn't have stolen her vote. They also threw in uh, a paragraph about the, uh, you may have heard about the, the, the list that was sent yesterday of supposed three, over 3,000 people that had changed, that are no longer in Nevada, but the voted potentially. Right. Uh, and and they, they, they threw that in there. So there was there was yes, there was some differences in the parties there were some differences in kind of the particularized harms. Uh, but but the what they were asking for was much the same. They wanted the machine stopped. They wanted ballots segregated so that they could they could, you know, wouldn't be counted in so they could be challenged uh, individually or at least the signatures could be viewed individually. And they wanted greater access or closer proximity in their observing. So um, before I let you go, uh, there are people down at the registrar's office in Clark County right now who are protesting, uh, who are in line because they feel like they haven't, uh, that their, their vote hasn't been counted, which I feel like is just going to slow the counting down because now people have to, now people at the registrar's office have to take care of those people who are now in line. Um, but I also feel like maybe this is an attempt to show that there are lots of people whose votes have not been counted. And if the registrar doesn't stop and take care of those people, then that's a lawsuit that may come down the pike. That very well. There's a lot of different strategies. I know uh, my strategy may not be the right word there. Mm. I think for the most part, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, individuals that are worried about their, whether their ballot was counted, friend, friends and family. I think a lot of that has been uh, based upon uh, the the how they've been following things on the tracking program, um, and uh, the Secretary of State yesterday put out some some information on on that. I think they're handling that well. I would say the vast bulk, my experience, vast bulk of those people are sincere and they just want to make sure that their votes are counted. Um, but you've got a kind of an interesting uh, clash of of claims going on. There's 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 on the one hand. Uh, kind of generalized claims that Assembly Bill 4 and the kind of the expansion of voting rights let too many people vote. And I, I don't mean that like I, I don't mean that in the sense that people that uh, you know, suppression, I mean that that ineligible people, there's, there's this mm-hmm. claim that that it opened the door to fraud and there was too much fraud. And at the same time, there's this argument that somehow uh, it prevented people from voting. So basically, there's a they're arguing both suppression and um and fraud at the same time i I think 
which probably is it's just this is a new this is I one somebody said it earlier about how they were doing two different election systems at once. Mm-hmm. That's correct. I'd say they'd actually doing three different election systems because this is our first election with same day registration as well. And so they had to uh, All right. do that for the first time. And so, uh, you know, there's pandemic, social distancing, new law, new rules, all this stuff in once. I, I think there is some confusion. I think there's some people that are just uh, maybe are mistaking uh, unfamiliarity with the process or confusion with, 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 with something more nefarious. It's just not there. OK, so you brought up something uh, before I let you go. You brought up this list of people who have moved out of state. Mm-hmm. There have been a lot of people who said, uh, yes, we're in the military. That's why we moved out of state. And our place of residence is still Nevada. Correct. So uh, that is legal, correct? They correct. can still 100%. vote in Nevada. Yes, you you only lose your residency if you choose to lose your residency. You're, you're, for voting purposes, you're only allowed one residency. Uh, but whether you're going to college, whether you're long vacation, whether you're at the military, whether you're going to, to help out a family member that might be in need of help, um, a whole host of reasons. Even people that are have moved and are intending to move permanently uh, are allowed a little bit of a grace period around the election time that they, they can still mm-hmm. vote. Uh, in their former place because their new place may not may not get them registered and get allow them to vote in time. So uh, the burden is going to be on the the Trump campaign or whoever's bringing this forward to actually show that these each of these individually, that there was something uh, that this nefarious, that these, mm. these people you know were registered in these other states. And, and so far, I've seen no no evidence of that. Uh, and it, it seems like it was just a lot of perfectly legal voting from people that are just happen to be living out of the state. I've, I've voted when I lived out of state when I was in college. Right. So. so did I. Daniel Stewart is an election lawyer in Las Vegas with the firm of Hutchison and Stesson. Thank you for joining us, Dan. I really appreciate this. You're very welcome. Have a great night. You too. Bye. We're going to take a short break and be back to talk about who got elected down the ballot in Nevada. To protect my family and others. To respect my neighbors. To protect myself and keep businesses thriving. I wear a mask because I love my grandparents. With so many reasons to wear a mask, together we can keep Nevada strong. Learn more at nvhealthresponse.nv.gov. This message funded by a grant through the Nevada Department of Health and Human Services, aired in cooperation with the Nevada Broadcasters Association and this station. We are talking today about this election with Sandra Cosgrove and Sarah O'Connell and Cecia Alvarado and Lisa Mosley. You just heard uh, about 30 seconds ago uh, Daniel Stewart, who is an attorney, explaining to us about lawsuits. Uh, Sandra, uh, let's talk about this list for one moment here. This list was part of the lawsuit that they filed yesterday. Uh, there are people who are very upset because their names are on on this list and they're voting legally. Uh, but as Daniel said, they're going to have to prove every single person is an illegal voter. So what was interesting about that, because um, when the, the lawsuit dropped and the petition to go into federal court was made public, they didn't actually cite that list. They said uh, dead people are voting, people who live out of state are voting. So they made these assertions but never said, and we have evidence, and this is the evidence that we have. They just made a, a ball-faced assertion that dead people were voting. Mm. But they never referenced that list. I was kind of surprised about that. But they did send a letter to the Department of Justice, to a, uh, Attorney General Barr, and asked him to do an investigation. Interesting. So not, that was weird. That is weird. And, you know, Barr may, in fact, do an investigation. You never know. Um, we've been talking about the presidential vote with all eyes on Joe Gloria. I met Joe Gloria, Sandra, because you brought him into the studio a long time ago. Uh, I want to mention that I I talked about Stephen Colbert at the beginning of the show. He put tape of Joe Gloria facing off against the beer guy. I I say that because he was wearing a T-shirt saying something about beer. Um, he put that on his show because of the way that Joe reacted. Talk to me about that, Sandra. So in my book, Joe Gloria is a saint. Um, <laughs> Joe can do no wrong. I love Joe Gloria. But I mean, I think he's the consummate um, civil servant. 
I think he has gotten so used to people yelling at him and flying off the handle and stuff. He's just very stoic. He's very calm. He tries to, I mean, you could tell in his voice that the reporters were starting to annoy him because they kept asking him the same questions. Yeah. And I could hear his teacher voice saying, I'm not going to explain this to you again. Right. Um, but, but I think he, he's just a consummate civil servant. And I think if you watch the, the press conferences and the, the reporting from every state where there's these type of challenges, you're going to be seeing civil servants who are under a tremendous amount of pressure that shouldn't be being attacked right now. Yeah. I agree, uh, especially the people who are counting the votes. A lot of people are volunteers who are coming in and counting the votes and working very long hours. I also agree that Joe Gloria is a saint. He is my hero. Uh, I want to look now at who won and who didn't win in Nevada, not Trump, Biden, but, you know, who won on a more local level. It looks like our congressional team is going to stay the same. Dina Titus, Stephen Horsford, Susie Lee, Mark Amaday. Uh, there's nothing that's been changed there, correct? Uh, you want to, uh, Cecia? I think so far nothing has changed on the congressional. Okay. And then uh, in the assembly side, stay with me, Cecia. In the assembly side, uh, they still hold the majority, but they've lost a couple of seats. They lost uh, Connie Monk's seat uh, up where Sarah lives in the north, 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 part of town. Uh, they yeah. lost, I'll bring you in a second. Uh, they lost uh, Shea Bacchus's seat to uh, Republican Andy Matthews. Uh, in the Senate, uh, Carrie Buck squeaked by Joyce Woodhouse's handpicked successor, Christy Watson, with less than 400 votes. Uh, Nicole Canizero kept her seat. She's the Democratic leader. Uh, she retained her seat by 231 votes. Uh, and Roberta Lang picked up David Park's seat, which was unopposed. Uh, she had a tough primary against Ellen Spiegel, but she came out of that. So we keep that seat. So it looks to me like we're a couple down in the Assembly, Cecia, and a couple down in the Senate. I know you uh, work to, to lobby v votes in the Assembly during the session. So how does this change your strategy? Well, there's a few, uh, I think there's a few lessons and, and I go back to the importance of the Latino vote. I, I don't want to go deep on this because I don't think it's my position to uh, give a, a deep opinion on how, how they run their campaigns, but did you engage Latinos? That's all I'm going to say about those races. So. I don't. I, I'm gonna say is that lesson learned from this, and and I and I would always continue to advocate not only because it's my job, but because it is um it is my place to also advocate for my own community to say that if you don't engage Latinos, um, yeah, I don't I don't know what you're trying to do. <laughs> like I don't know where you how you're trying to win. Um, well, let's talk about what our priorities, right? Well, we are we're not here just for an election cycle. Uh, we're here to build political power for for the, our voiceless communities and, and continue to empower our communities to trust us, to trust our government, to trust the system. Um, we are going to face a very challenging uh, legislative session in 2021. Um, you know, as as we are facing a very uh, uh, we're facing hard times right now in, mm -hmm. our, in, our, in our local economy. We still we still don't have COVID under control. Um, I worry about education. It's one of our top priorities in, the, in policy. Uh, I'm worried about education. I'm worried that um, we year after session after session we go back and fight for some victory. We'll go back and fight for funding for for the schools that need it the most. Um, we'll continue to fight, and I'm worried that um, we'll, we would not have enough voices advocating for education during this legislative session. That's one of my top uh, worries and priorities, uh, knowing that we, I, I don't know if the numbers are final, if we're still counting. I mean, there's still mm -hmm. some votes coming coming through. I mean, 200 votes, we still have a few thousand ballots to count. So um, I don't know if anything would change, uh, but definitely uh, a little worry about you know what our priorities are going to look like during the legislative session. I mean, we we saw that yes, we made major gains during the past legislative session. There was special session. Um, there was you know we still we need we need a um, we need a legislature 
that is able to work um, along party lines. And unfortunately, they're very divided. They're, it's, it's about fighting what the Democrats stand for, about fighting what the Republicans stand for. Very little times they meet in the middle. Mm. Um, so I, and I feel this is just going to continue to pull them apart and continue to divide them. And this is right now, 2021 is when we're going to need them the most. And let, this is not me going into registering because we have the queen of mapping here um, with us today. <laughs> and so if anybody, if anybody would educate us on, you know, what those challenges will look like for next year. Uh, but it is, it is about representation. It's that, you know, we've, we've, we're fighting for people to feel represented and, and that would also include during the legislative session. That would also include during uh, registering. Right. Okay. So let me, let me take this. I want to ask Sarah really quickly uh, how many, is there a large Latino population around where you live where Connie Monk served? Actually, I kind of, I live in the Michelle Fiore, no man. Yeah. Uh, I live in the Centennial area. So, you know, we have a real mix. There's, you know, I'm right on kind of right on that edge of Las Vegas to North Las Vegas. Okay. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, up here, you kind of get a mix. So you have everything from. So there were people uh, that could, that, that, that Connie Monk could have gone to to get vote. Well, I helped personally helped her canvas the first time she got elected and it was a bitter, tough fight. That was the tightest of tight races. Mm -hmm. It is so hard up here because this is a place that happily re-elects Michelle Fiore as the city council person. Yeah, and so that just gives you an indication. It's like an oil and water type situation here. There's not a lot of middle ground. Mm -hmm. If you go to a town hall for a local or state legislator, you have just kind of more of two extremes than you do middle in a lot of cases. It, just At least that's been my anecdotal experience as someone who's engaged here. Um, so, but but uh, I feel like I did have a fresh, I think you asked earlier about the couple of the differences between Trump and the Democrats mm -hmm. and this issue of uh, campaigning in a pandemic and the issue of door-to-door -door contact is still something that was markedly, markedly different in ah. terms of the outreach of the two campaigns. And when you're talking about disenfranchised, historically disenfranchised voters or a transitional a community that keeps getting evicted and moved around and that now half the people are living with relatives, even people who, you know, the stagehand industry where I come from, they're all displaced or looking at displacement. That one-to-one -one contact, yes, it's life-threatening, but it, you can't say it doesn't have an impact not to knock on people's doors. Because oh. I didn't canvas for Connie Monk because of the pandemic the way I did the first time. But I am still the same person who supports her as fervently compared to mm. her competitor. So, so I'm gonna. I so like that's a factor because the Trumpers, the, whether they killed people or got them sick or whatever, they didn't care. I'm not saying we sh we should have expected the Democrats to do what the Trump campaign did. I'm just saying it's a difference, and I I'm not saying it's. I do believe also, if you have a problem, not reaching out to other communities. And if you're a well-meaning liberal with your latte and your yoga pants, <laughs> you know, and you don't get out there and knock on other people's doors and show that you care about them enough to step out of your zone and into their neighborhood, it's hard to build that trust and keep that dialogue going. And so I think we have to continue to deal with how we reach out one-on-one -on -one and how we um, uh, pull and canvas, you know? Actually, I think that's, uh, that's something for another show. Lisa, uh, the the issues that we're going to be there's lots of issues that we're going to be facing in this legislature. Uh, education is one that Cecilia uh, talked about. Uh, criminal justice reform is another one. Um, I actually have oh I don't think I I, I set it up but there is uh, there was a bill last in, the, in 2019 that was actually supposed to the legislators thought that they were voting uh to uh, save police officers from being targeted by their superiors but instead it shielded police officers period uh and there are people who want to repeal that bill uh there are uh taxes there's the mining tax there are two mining tax issues the Democrats promised uh, during the special session. One was uh, to raise the mining tax to the to uh, uh, the ceiling that it's that is constitutionally uh, guaranteed now, and the other is to take the ceiling out of the Constitution. Uh, how does this losing a couple of seats uh, and losing three seats overall change that for the Democrats? 
I don't know that it changes it very much. I mean, okay. the Democrats are still in the majority right. in the House, and it looks like Cannizzaro is going to pull her seat out. I mean, I think they're going to be one down in the Senate. There'll be two down in the Senate, right? So that they two. they almost had a supermajority in 2019, but mm-hmm. for uh, Keith Pickard, who got who who won by I think right. 19 votes or something like that, and now they have they have two. They have you know Keith Pickard and Carrie Buck who who have overlapping districts or uh, abutting districts. So the Dems are still going to have the majority, we hope, you know, when, when this is all said and done. And so I think it's going to, it's going to still be in our, in their favor. I think it's still going to be in their favor. Um, There are so many, like you said, there are so many things on the line, but I do want to just for a minute, touch on Connie Monk's. Mm-hmm. Um, this this is me talking as a consultant and somebody who's done targeting and done work. That Assembly District 4 has leaned Democrat for a very long time. But the problem in that district is there, and I don't want to say it's a problem, there are a lot of apartment complexes and uh, things in that district. And traditionally, yeah. it has been tough for Democrats to turn those people out. The new voter registration or the people who are not even registered to vote in that district, because there is such a high turnover in that district of Democrats, the Republicans that are there or have been there, they stay there. Those are the people who are in their homes and they stay there. Those are those people are not moving. It's the There's a lot of apartment complexes and there are a lot of new apartment complexes. So I just wanted to touch on that. But as far as the legislation that's coming up in the next legislative session, I think it's going to be a very exciting session. It's going to be a community, uh, a grassroots session, mm. I believe. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of grassroots organizations who have an interest in the legislation that's going to be coming up. There are a lot of grassroots organizations and coalitions that are being formed that are wanting to have a say in the legislation that is coming up. So this is going to be a very interesting and a very exciting legislative session. And what I, I, I warned the Democrats that if they're not listening to those folks, if they're not listening to the African-American folks, they're not listening to the Latino folks, if they're not listening to the Native American folks, people have w- woken up and people understand that how legislation affects them. And they also understand that they get to have a say in it. And so all of these coalitions are forming and they're wanting to have a say in this legislation. And the Democrats Democrats don't listen to that, mm. they're going to see a different 2022 come. Interesting. Uh, Cecia, let's talk about police reform. Uh, Democrats have have uh, promised that they will uh, go further than they did in the summer session uh, to uh, vote in police reform. Do you believe them? Um, we look at the police reform from a different angle because uh, when we look at police reform as Latinos, I'm also looking at police reform and ways to reform immigration. You know, we have a, the 287G program yes. very much active in Las Vegas, and that is the collaboration between the police and ICE. If you are arrested in Las Vegas, and if you were not born in this country, regardless of your immigration status, ICE gets a, a little ding from the from our uh, the uh, police department. They get the little uh, phone call, and um, and then that they become the pro- and becomes the process of assessing whether you your immigration status. So even for for folks that are naturalized, and I mean this is a whole different right, like a whole different story, a whole different show. But this is how some people are like, how do the citizens end in at ICE detention centers because they weren't born here maybe, and then we have a system that it automatically picking you like if you are a uh, were born in a, in a different country they automatically uh, flag it to ICE to come get you so when we look at police reform we also need to look at those of how the police is interacting with uh, with ICE and how mm. the police is also um, feeding not just um, ICE detention centers but also like in our schools that pipeline between the schools and in in uh, in jails and and I think we pulled some data that uh, 33% of those referrals were coming from CCSD and that's that's troublesome. We need to we need to look at um, a criminal justice reform and we also need to look at um, how we are investing in education and investing in those resources rather than you know um, arming our uh, or putting more police bodies in our schools where uh, we lack of uh, the resources to to, uh, to help our students. So when we look at police reforms, uh, we're looking on um, to continue to build that trust that our community don't trust the police. Yeah. Um, a, a, a person would much rather um, not uh, report a, uh, a crime. And if you call the police, there's a likelihood that if you get arrested, you're gonna also get deported. So this, um, this is a concern that when we look at police reform, um, it's 
we we cannot not have the conversation about also immigration. Sandra, I want to pick up on a few things that Cecia just said, and one of them is about the the um, the two eighty seven G program. I actually did a story on that a few years ago uh, with Amy Rose and Mike Kagan uh, from uh, the ACLU at the time and the Immigration Clinic and. Uh, and somebody who was a deputy sheriff, a couple of people actually, from the sheriff's department, who said uh, that they were going to stop the 287G program. They said it on the air. They talked a lot after. Uh, Mike and Amy went and toured the facility, and they laid the police department laid out how they were going to stop this program, and then they never did. They just never did. So even if the legislature says, yes, we're going to do police reform, who's going to make sure that police reform gets done? So we do elect our sheriff. We do elect the district attorney. Hmm. I mean, within the criminal justice system, there are people that we elect. And so we need to elect different people into those positions who will include accountability. But this this goes back to the problem of having a part-time legislature, because when we had... Um, problems with with police behavior just a couple of months ago um speaker frierson said oh well you know i had this bill last session and they were going to go through you know sensitivity training and they were going to do all this stuff and then when the reporter said well let's go talk to metro and see if they did it and metro said nah yeah no we didn't do it and here's the thing that frustrates me is i worked with Brittany miller last session on an accountability bill mm -hmm. and it was just all it said was this if a bill is passed in the legislature and signed by the governor, that whatever agency is in charge of implementing that new law must every six months just send a report to the Legislative Council Bureau that can be put online explaining how they're doing implementation so that we can see that those bills are being implemented because oftentimes they don't get implemented. And then next session, we don't know what to do. Um, and the Democrats killed that bill, even though it came out of committee and everybody voted yes. They're like, that's a great idea. Let's do this. It went to the floor in the assembly. Everybody said, yes, let's do that. And then when it got over to the Senate, they killed it. Did they kill it because Nicole Canizero works for the district, district attorney's office? We never got a clear explanation of why they killed it. But we got, oh, that would cause, uh, it would cost too much. And it would be, um, there would be too much bureaucratic machinery that would have to go with it. And we're like, no, we want them to type up a Word document, save it as a PDF and send it to the Legislative Council Bureau. And so this is, this gets to the kind of the heart of why people get turned off from politics. When you're saying, can we please just have some transparency and accountability, which legislators say they like. <laughs> and then when you actually get in the system, they stab you in the front and stab you in the back and kill your bill. And then in the next election, they're like, oh, but please vote for us. Right. Uh, okay, so you are on with me right now, Sandra, and Cecia referred to you as the queen of redistricting. I think I agree with that. Uh, talk to me about what's going to happen in 2021 vis-a-vis uh, -re -vis redistricting. So as of right now, we are assuming redistricting will happen in April. We weren't sure because at first they had extended the deadline for doing the census count. And so they were then saying, then we're not going to get the data till the end of July. So that means we wouldn't do redistricting until September. But then the Trump administration came back and said, nope, we're not going to give you the extra time. It has to go back to the original deadline. We're assuming that that's what it's going to stay. If that's the case, then redistricting happens in April. That's when the Census Bureau will send the legislature the, the data. Interestingly, um, the League of Women Voters worked with Indivisible. We ran a ballot uh, question to do an independent redistricting commission. And I won't get into the fight we ended up having with the Democrats over that, which to <laughs> me is, is a different type of fight because it's one thing for, to fight with the Republicans when they just flat out tell you they're gonna do something. It's another thing when the Democrats, on when their public facing messages, that's bad, we would never do that. And then behind the scenes are like, yeah, we're gonna do that. That That is very demoralizing and makes you not wanna work with people. Mm -hmm. But um, there's an interim committee that is planning for making the software purchase and setting up the rules for redistricting. And it met about 10 days ago and I watched it. And the Legislative Council Bureau, which is the staff that works for the, the legislature, they told the, the members of the committee, Joyce Wordhouse is chairing that committee, that they had made the purchase of the software, which is exactly what Utah uses for their redistricting commission. 
because they have an advisory commission. Ah. So one part of the software is for legislators to use and then built into it is a tool for the public to use so that we can draw our own maps and we can evaluate the maps that are being drawn. So they just let the committee know that that's the software package and that they would like to adopt the same rules that Utah's uh, redistricting commission uses for getting public feedback. So the Legislative Council Bureau is kind of doing a sideways, we're going to still kind of kind of have a redistricting field to what you're doing, and we're not going to let you draw the maps behind closed doors. I've contacted Professor Wang, who's in charge of the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, and he has now assigned four graduate students to help us do training on that software tool in January so that while they're doing redistricting, we will all be able to draw our own maps and we will be able to discover gerrymandering as soon as they do it. Okay, so uh, we are in the coming weeks going to talk about redistricting only. We're going to talk about education only. We're going to talk about criminal justice reform only. And you will all be back in uh, some of those capacities uh, right now. I've got to end this show. We are at an hour. Our post-election episode of Impact has come and gone, uh, and we have a lot more to talk about. Impact is a co-production of Nevada Voice and KUNV. You can find the show's link at KUNV.org. Thank you to Cecia Alvarado, Sandra Cosgrove, Lisa Mosley, and Sarah O'Connell for vetting all of this with me today. And thanks to Daniel Stewart for breaking down the legal ramifications. Our intro music is Foster the People's Life on the Nickel, and you're listening to Oxford Comma right now. Special thanks to Christian, Bella, Lola, Emery, and Quinn Robertson for sharing their family fun dynamic with us. It is chaos, but it will be fine. We're going to be back next week. I'm Carrie Kaufman. Thank you for listening to Impact. Impact.